so much of what we, is happening in the sciences is we're looking at the surface of the world and the phenomena of the world as it directly appears to us. And today, increasingly, due to the enormous success of the sciences, we tend to reduce reality to those things that are immediately apparent to us. And we don't try to think about the way in which the surface reality fits within this bigger picture, within a bigger story. And that's precisely what's going on within the Emmaus Road example. You know, there's a failure to understand um, who Jesus Christ is because they're just looking at him on the surface. And when they come to think about who he is in light of a bigger story, then they develop a much greater understanding of, of who he is and what, what's going on in that situation. And there's something really true um, there about how, as a metaphor almost for um, some of the problems that we have with the way in which science comes to shape our um, understanding of what reality is all about. So I think when, when we, we're coming to understand the world and what the meaning of the creation is in which we participate, we need to recognize that we have a God that has not simply created a world and then left that world to itself, but it is a world that is so loved by God that God becomes one with that world, um, as takes that world to himself, um, and in and through the, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, um, you not, Comes, unites creation with who God is and God's self. And all this is, anticipates what is to come in the new creation, and the whole of creation will be united with God and will find its fulfillment. And when we come to think about the world in which we live, we need to really think about what it is according, not simply to its beginnings, but according to its end, according to the end for which it was created that is bound up with who God is for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Good Heavens is a podcast examining and appreciating the wonders of the cosmos from a biblical perspective, designed for education for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, 
and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, which John describes in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation, verses 9 through 20. It was a vision that caused John to fall at Jesus' feet as a dead man. Yet Jesus mercifully lays his right hand upon his beleaguered servant and proclaims to John, quote, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one, and I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus is also described in Scripture as the bright and morning star, the son of righteousness, the star of Jacob, the bridegroom, the vine, the door, our sun and shield, our creator, savior, Messiah and Lord of all things in heaven and on earth. As the Apostle Paul tells us in the first chapter of the book of Colossians, God, quote, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything." End quote. Colossians 1 verses 13 through 18. Why then, if Jesus is to have first place in everything, 
that more often than not, he is marginalized, or worse, never mentioned in contemporary discussions about theology and science. This is not an observation just about secular science, but something of a trend within the church as well, according to our guest on Good Heavens this week. Dr. Andrew B. Torrance of St. Andrews University in Scotland is co-editor of a 2018 two-volume anthology of essays about creation, the second volume of which, Christ and the Created Order, Perspectives from Theology, Philosophy, and Science, is the topic of our discussion. As noted in the introduction of the book, quote, In conversations about science and faith, Jesus Christ rarely comes up. In many respects, this is understandable. It is not immediately obvious how Jesus could be relevant to the scientific study of the natural order, even for Christians. While it is widely assumed that the historical Jesus really existed, the natural order does not generally reveal him, and it is difficult to know how a historical figure, especially one who lived on earth 2,000 years ago and did not concern himself with scientific discovery, could make a decisive difference to our scientific understanding of the natural world." But, they go on to say, quote, if the Christian wants to recognize the natural order for what it actually is, a created order, then Christ has everything to do with the object of her study, end quote. Believers will often become mired in discussions about how they believe God created and sustains the physical world, with little specific reference to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Whether one accepts some form of evolution, or a more literal young earth universe position, or whether one embraces some form of intelligent design or old earth creationism, what we as Christians all should have in common is a vision of Jesus Christ that unites us rather than divides us. Christians of all backgrounds have much to gain from a Christ-centered vision of creation. For apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Perhaps we can explain all the mysteries of the cosmos by our particular scientific views, but in the end, without love, we have become nothing better than a clanging symbol. But this is not to say that the aim of Christ and the created order is to cajole Christian scientists to mention Jesus in their papers or to hand out gospel tracts in the observatory or laboratory. This is not a book about evangelistic methods, but rather a call to think and consider more deeply the preeminence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in discussions about theology and science. This discussion with Andrew was an excellent reminder to me of just how central and necessary it is for us as believers to have Jesus always before us in such discussions. It is a call to challenge our own understandings, our own apologetic methods, and our own assumptions about what we think we know about Jesus and what he has made and continues to sustain. Might our particular favorite scientific theory tempt us to be like Job and his friends, who think they've figured out precisely how and why God does what he does? The longest discourse of God speaking in Scripture is his reply to Job. You might say it is God's own commentary on the Genesis creation account. All things in the heavens and on earth reflect God's wisdom in Christ Jesus. And as image bearers of our Creator, we too should strive to reflect His wisdom as accurately as we are able. Like John, let us come to the feet of Jesus, for, quote, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. End quote. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. As we began our conversation, I asked Andrew about how our westernized secular culture's diminished influences of monarchy and our own preference for individual autonomy have impeded our ability to understand Jesus as Lord and King of creation. Andrew Torrance. Yes, I think that that's a big issue. I mean, I think today much of society really embraces a certain notion of freedom, which is a freedom to be whoever we want to be. Um, and there's a certain disrespect for authority. Um, that means we get very nervous about the idea of there being a Lord, um, someone that's all powerful, um, having some decisive role in determining um, what our lives should look like. And so I think there's ways in which the way society operates today um, doesn't prepare it for understanding much of the way in which um, people throughout the Old Testament and the New would have thought about God um, in ways that resonated with much of their culture at the time. I can see the idea of the modern 20th century, 21st century scientist uh, with, with an image of uh, King George III in his mind overlooking uh, his work in a laboratory or, or in a telescope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the king sort of dictating what he's going to write down. And, and then, of course, yeah. you know, that famous exchange with Laplace and, and Napoleon, and he just simply tells Napoleon, I have no need of God. I have no need of that hypothesis. And uh, so it just got me to wondering about this idea of, of, of a king and, and this monarchy and, and, and this rampant individualism, how that may have uh, contributed to the, to the marginalizing of, of Jesus uh, in, in the sciences today. Um, but anyway, let's, let's start, Andrew, if you would just give uh, our listeners a little bit of a personal bio, who you are and what you do at St. Andrews and uh, how this project came to be. We can start there. Okay, great. Thank you. So um, when I first moved to university, I I went to the University of St. Andrews. I came to study a degree in astrophysics. So right Mm. throughout my my high school, my time at high school, I was passionate about the sciences and I was definitely not much of an arts student. And so, yeah, during my first year, I thought I'm going to pursue astrophysics. Mm. And I think during that time, I started to ask some of the central theological questions and I was able to take a course in theology and which I chose to do and that that really captured my imagination and that's it really got me excited in ways that I hadn't been excited before and so I transferred from doing a degree in astrophysics to doing a degree in theology and yeah became more and more interested in the the deeper questions that, that it raised and yeah ended up going on to do a master's and to do a PhD, where I did my PhD at the University of Otago in New Zealand under someone called Murray Ray. And I was looking at two thinkers called Søren Kierkegaard and Karl Barth, mm-hmm. and looking at the nature of conversion. So what does it mean to become Christian? Mm. And as, it, as my PhD drew to an end, I had to think about what the future might look like. And I thought, um, it, well, it was suggested that I might put together a proposal um, to develop a project on science and religion in the UK, um, and in particular, a project that would um, bring the church into engagement with the academic world um, on questions about science and faith. 
Mm. And so I put together a proposal for a project called Scientists and Congregations Scotland. And it actually was inspired by a project in the United States called Scientists and Congregations um, that led to the, us putting in a proposal to run a similar project in, in Scotland. And the idea of this project was that we, that we would provide funding for churches right throughout Scotland um, to develop projects that would help people within their congregation develop a more constructive understanding of the relationship between science and faith. And each of these projects was headed up by a scientist who worked together with a pastor. Um, and there is a, I mean, a wide range of different projects. Some churches were doing um, experiments within the churches, some were hosting Bible studies, some were um, organizing conferences. Um, and so, yeah, and doing a wide variety of activities that would help people see that science and faith aren't in com competition with one another. Not only that, that there's a really important and constructive relationship that can be had when we bring these things together. So I oversaw that project for three years. And I mean, that really gave me a chance to um, bring my past passion for the sciences together with my, my new passion um, for theology. I mean, I, I've always maintained a passion for both of these things, but I'd never really got the chance to really bring these two together. Um, to, um, under some under what could be described as a vocation and so and for me a lot of what this project was seeking to do was missional so it was really trying to help people um, within churches and I think within the surrounding society see that there isn't an either or choice to be made between science and faith you know, there's ways in which these two can come together and have a happy marriage if mm -hmm. you like. now there's a whole host of problems that um, I, I saw within the conversation about science and faith. And so that led me to organize two um, major conferences that brought the churches together, along with some leading um, academics and church leaders from across the world um, on topics that I, help, I thought would help generate a more positive understanding of the relationship between science and theology. So the first conference we organized was on the topic of knowing creation. And the idea of that conference was to try and think about what does it mean to understand the natural order, to understand nature um, as a crea created nature, as, as creation. So understanding the natural world as creation. So very often there's a certain, there's a kind of a, the science, sciences are seen to study the natural world and then theology studies creation. And I think we really need to be bringing these two things together. We shouldn't be compartmentalizing between this kind of the natural order and the created order, mm. but see, developing an, uh, a theological understanding that is able to view um, the two together as one. Mm. So that was what the first conference was um, seeking to do. And then the next conference, which, which was the topic of this edited volume, was on Christ and the created order, and Christ and creation. And the, the concern of that conference is help people see that when we think about the world in which we live, we shouldn't just be thinking about it in relationship to a distant God, a God who sort of created the world and then left it to itself, left it to itself as a well-ordered um, world that functions in regular ways that allows for the sciences to do the work that they do. Um, but that, there, that there's a way in which we can think about creation in which God is much more involved in it. Um, and this is revealed first and foremost in God with us, Emmanuel in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's something that doesn't just happen sort of 2000 years ago, 
that speaks to the whole of creation um, as a narrative about a God that creates a world that God involves God's health in. Right. It, it, it's, it's wonderful. The volume, to me, you know, it's, it's uh, multifaceted, of course. You've got a variety of contributors. It's not just one voice, which is always always uh, gives, gives a work its uh, holistic um, depths, if you will, because you're not just cloistered into one particular point of view. You have, a, you have a unity, and yet you have a diversity as well reflected in that unity. Um, I like what you say, Andrew, on page 18 of the book in your introduction. Uh, I found this so true. You say, so long as Christian reflection on science and faith leaves Christ out of the conversation, it gives hostages to fortune. It invites a tendency towards a natural theology that without recourse to special revelation, imagines a very different God from the true in God who is worshipped in the life of the church. The, quote, one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, who discloses himself in the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through him, uh, through whom we exist. First uh, Corinthians eight six, and it was just a refreshing. It was just refreshing to read that because uh, so often in, in in my field of apologetics uh, that I, that I see here in the United States we 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 tend to reduce creation again getting to that tendency that you said earlier about reductionism. Um, apologetic arguments tend to distill things down to a, a syllogism or a very reductive point of view on. Uh, you know, two basic questions. Do you believe evolution and uh, how old is everything? And it seems to be that's the extent of primarily what people are primarily concerned of in, in regards to the, the church's interaction with science and creation. Did you find in your research and in your experience, Andrew, that the church was, there was just a paucity of engagement with, with creation and or science? So, I mean, I think it depends on the kind of conversation that we're, that we're having. I think you're, you're very right that very often the kind of conversations that we have about apologetics and these very much very often resonate with the kind of conversations that happen when we're talking about science and faith um we don't tend to think about god um according to the way in which god reveals god's self in the natural world in specific ways we tend to th- engage in a kind of natural theology that tries to think about the very god in very minimalist terms you know mm-hmm. what is the very basic sort of thing that we can say about god on the basis of a natural theology. And then we can say things like, well, maybe God designs the world, God creates the world, maybe God um, gives the world a certain moral order, that God gives it purpose. Um, and we speak in these very sort of abstract terms about um, who God is and how God relates to the world. And the reason, but one of the problems there is that we very often just assume that we understand what nature is and on the basis of nature that we should then, that we then have good basis to think about God. One of the things that we want to argue in the book that we write on Christ and the created order is that there's a way in which who Jesus Christ is, is fundamental to helping us understand what nature is, what this natural world is. And it's only when we think about what nature is in light of who Jesus Christ is, that we can then properly understand who God is. Mm. And so always trying to think about um, the way in which Jesus Christ should be shaping our whole Christian imagination. It's just fundamental to, you know, one of the one of the fundamental points we're trying to make with this volume. Yeah, it's it's it reminded me the the approach was in a sense um, trying to discern, trying to begin with Christ, right? That the the foundation of how we understand nature. You're kind of saying that that 
traditionally what we do is we, we start with nature first and then see if we can come up with some clues about who God is, but rather you're arguing, let's look at Jesus first and then come up with ways in which we can look at nature. Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's biblical reasons for us doing that, that are understandable. At the beginning of, of scripture, we have the two creation stories that obviously themselves don't speak about who Jesus Christ is. And so very often when we're trying to think about what creation is, um, we turn to the beginning of Genesis and we think about the sort of the origins of creation. Mm-hmm. We think about um, what it means for God to order the world. We think about the central place that human beings have within that. And then we think about Jesus Christ as one who comes later to fix a world that's gone wrong in light of the fall. Mm. And obviously some of that is true. But what we find um, in the Gospel of John in particular, but also right throughout the letters of the Apostle Paul, is that there's a sense in which God created the world so that Jesus Christ could be born. That's, that's a, something that David Ferguson, um, mm. professor of theology at Edinburgh, um, says in some of the work that he does, that God created the world so that Christ could be born. And so that Jesus Christ is always a part of God's plan. It's not just a, a backup plan. Yeah, not plan B. It's gone wrong. Exactly, <laughs> precisely. It's, um, you know, there's an extent to which, I mean, the Apostle Paul really identifies um, creation with Jesus Christ. Jesus mm. Christ is the one in, through, who, and for whom all things were created. Um, Jesus Christ is the word made flesh, the very word um, through which God spoke the world into existence. And so what we find is throughout the New Testament as a call to rethink retrospectively what creation is all about, such that we're called to go beyond um, what we can learn about from the Genesis narrative alone. And what we find then is the very beginnings um, being united with what we might describe as the ends of creation mm. um, and held together in ways that helps us to get a much um, more accurate picture of the creation narrative. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned it, uh, one of the essays mentions in the book, uh, the way the, uh, the older theologians would argue about Jesus uh, or discourse about Jesus and um, from Luke's uh, discourse uh, on the Emmaus road in Luke 24, mm-hmm. that uh, Luke tells us that Jesus reasoned with the disciples beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all the things concerning himself. And so, as you just say, there's this tie back to to the resurrected, revealed, incarnate Word of God in flesh, who tabernacled among us, who walks with us to Emmaus, and yet we, like the disciples, Andrew, it's it's like here we are getting a full Old Testament exegesis from the God of the universe, and we don't even recognize Him as He's doing, it, you know. And what's great about the Emmaus Road example is it shows it really points to the ways in which we can be short-sighted yes. in how we interpret what is going on. You know, we had these people walking alongside Jesus and on the surface, on this surface analysis of who he is, they just can't see who he is. Mm. And, and so much of what we, is happening in the sciences is we're looking at the surface of the world mm. and the phenomena of the world as it directly appears to us. And today, increasingly, due to the enormous success of the sciences, we tend to reduce reality to those things that are immediately apparent to us. And Mm. we don't try to think about the way in which the surface reality fits within this bigger picture, within a bigger story. And that's precisely what's going on within the the Emmaus Road example. You know, there's a failure to understand um, who Jesus Christ is because they're just looking at him on the surface. And when they come to think about who he is in light of the bigger story, 
then they develop a much greater understanding of, of who he is and what, what's going on in that situation. And there's something really true um, there about how, as a, a metaphor almost for um, some of the problems that we have with the way in which science comes to shape our um, understanding of what reality is all about. Well, you know, you have one of the disciples telling Jesus in that narrative, are you the only one who doesn't know what happened? <laughs> Actually, he's exactly. the, yeah. the opposite. He's the, he's the only one who does yeah. know exactly yeah. what happened. Um, but, but I find that there's so much richness metaphorically and, and quite mm -hmm. literally as well in that dialogue with, with our own, as you say, Andrew, with our own perceptions of the physical world. Uh, our tendency since maybe David Hume, uh, or maybe if you want to go all the way back to, to Copernicus and Kepler and Bra. Uh, when you have the observational science of astronomy, um, not not intentionally, but 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 certainly with what Kepler came up with with the uh, with the elliptical orbits, with with the Copernicus suggested, although Copernicus didn't do a whole lot of observing, uh, but you have Galileo, and you certainly have Newton later on, um, where you have the observational sciences starting to predominate our understanding of the physical world, and maybe you could argue with Newton there was a slight uh, shift toward a deistic understanding of the cosmos where we could do observations to such an extent uh, that by the time of Laplace, we, could, we don't need God. Uh, look at all of the things that we've grown accustomed to explaining naturally. And I think one of the essays points out how unnatural it is for us to be able to explain things naturally. Yeah, precisely. I mean, what nature is, isn't something that we can just observe. You know, when, when we develop an understanding of what nature is, we have to have some kind of framework um, within which to make sense of it, to understand what, what it means to talk about nature. And so nature is a, a philosophical or theological construct that we develop um, according to which we understand what the world is. Um, and so th when we think about what the natural order is, um, we are bringing something to the table that we can't simply um, understand on the basis of observing the world in which we inhabit. Um, so yeah, I mean, na nature, the idea of nature is a philosophical concept rather than a scientific concept. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Thomas Torrance. Yeah, he's my, he's my great uncle. <laughs> is he? So he is, he is indeed. Oh my goodness, that's fantastic. Um, well, he, he's, he seems to be um, one theologian that came to mind of the last several decades who's truly has a Christological engagement with, with creation. Um, he seems to, <laughs> seems to be in your blood. Uh, yep. <laughs> he seems to be genuinely, I, I don't, I can't, I mean, I've, I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm super well read, but from all the stuff that I've read from a Christian perspective on, on theology and creation, it seems like uh, Mr. Torrance Thomas is uh has got his pulse finger on the pulse of things. Um, if you don't mind, I had a quote I wanted to read and have you talk about it a little bit. Yes, go for it. Uh, he, in his work, Space, Time, and Incarnation, which was, uh, came out in 1997, I think, um, he, says, he says this, quote, by the incarnation, Christian theology means that at a definite point in space and time, the Son of God became man, born at Bethlehem of Mary, a virgin espoused to a man called Joseph, a Jew of the tribe and lineage of David, towards the end of the reign of Herod the Great in Judea, given the name of Jesus. He fulfilled his mission from the Father, 
living out the span of earthly life allotted to him until he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. But when after three days he rose again from the dead, the eyes of Jesus' disciples were opened to what it all meant. They knew him to be God's son, declared with power, and installed in messianic office. And so they went out to proclaim him to all nations as the Lord and Savior of the world. Thus it is the faith and understanding of the Christian church that Jesus Christ, God himself, in his own being, has come into our world and is actively present as a personal agent within our physical and historical existence. And it goes on there more, but I think I love what he says, that Jesus Christ, God himself, in his own being, has come into our world and is actively present as a personal agent within our physical and historical existence. Yeah, I mean, that's a great quote. One, one of the things that's, that Torrance really picks up upon, and which I think is really important, um, is that in the incarnation, we have a divine in- endorsement of all that God has created. Hmm. Um, and it's God has created a world that, yes, has become broken, but it's not a world that God has completely removed God's self from. You know, th- there's very, sometimes very often when we're thinking about God, um, in ways that are influenced by Hellenistic philosophy, we have this sort of transcendent God that's very um, hands-off, that has to kind of keep away from um, creation because creation is this place of suffering and right. change and things that don't um, don't mix well with God is one way, one way to put it. Mm-hmm. But what we have in Jesus Christ is God becoming one with, that, with the world that is very different from who God is. So creation is obviously distinct from God. Um, but God unites God's self with it in the person of the Son. Um, not only that, um, in the re- resurrection of the body and the bodily ascension, um, God takes up creation into the triune life of God, um, such that creation is now with God for all eternity. Um, creation isn't something that um, is left behind um, following the incarnation, but it's something that is taken up and redeemed by becoming at one with God. Mm. Um, and participating in the fullness of the triune Godhead. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, your book, uh, I mean, one of the essays mentioned it, um, but it, it overall it reminded me as well of the uh, the narrative in Genesis of uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph um, Jacob and his, his wrestling with the angel, um, mm-hmm. that you have God coming down and grappling. Uh, the, some of the translations say, and Jacob wrestled with a man all night long, or Jacob wrestled with the angel all night long, but there was a a gritty wrestling match in the dust uh, that resulted in a physical injury that, that, that God comes down to us and grapples with us hand to hand, flesh on flesh, skin on skin. And then I love the question though, that, that, that Jacob is asked, why do you want to know my name? You know, what is the purpose? And I, I, I sometimes ask this to people, why do you want to investigate creation? What is the point in your experience, Andrew, did you did you ever ask this question to people who maybe were not believers, or or what is the what is your idea or understanding of how a scientist who who maybe not is not a Christian, uh, what would be the answer to you know if if creation is Christ first as a reflection of who Jesus is, what do you find in the responses of people who are not Christians who study creation? Why do they want to know? about nature is it just to satiate curiosity or is there some higher transcendent purpose in in scientists that maybe you've talked to over the years that uh articulate this question how do they respond to that 
Right. So there's a lot depends on which scientist you're asking. So obviously very different scientists are going to have very different answers to that, to that question. There are some scientists that um, think that their work's really going to help the world and obviously has by um, doing research into medicine, into technology in ways that really benefits society. Um, some scientists are really just committed to pursuing knowledge at all costs. They, they are driven by a kind of curiosity to advance, they would say, advance um, human understanding by developing, by sort of growing the wealth of knowledge that, that we have about the world. And so very often um, curiosity is seen to be a virtue within the sciences. Um, that is something that we should constantly be trying to, to fulfill um, by developing a better understanding of the world. And I mean, there's something to be respected in that, but there's also, there's also, it's also a strange kind of behavior to engage in because I mean, I think one of the things that um, I think every year perhaps becomes more and more evident is that knowing a lot of things isn't necessarily a good thing for the human race. Right. I mean, so for it, one could think of research into nuclear weapons, um, <laughs> yes. into chemical weapons, right. you know, there's, there's an extent to which simply knowing some, num- some things and investing an enormous amount of money in, in learning some things is probably going to be what ends up bringing about the end, end of the world. You know, it's, it's, I think it's very likely that human beings are going to destroy themselves by, at the end of the day, knowing, knowing too much in certain ways. And so I think there's ways in which, um, when we think about the world theologically, we become more attentive to the fact that maybe there are some things that are good for us to know and some things that aren't good, aren't good for us to know. Um, and this is what, one of the things we learn um, learn in the account of the fall that we're given in the second creation story is that one of the things that defines what it means to be a fallen human being is this kind of pursuit of knowing things that we're not supposed to know. Um, you know, it's embracing this knowledge of good and evil and trying to take it for ourselves mm-hmm. and trying to understand the world in our own terms rather than according to God. And again, mm-hmm. I think sometimes this this can this this problem can be evident in in a commitment within the scientists amongst the scientists to try and understand the way things work without having the proper i think theological framework for understanding how all things hold together mm-hmm. um yeah. in a way that enables us to understand things rightly and this i mean another way in which this is relevant is there's an enormous amount of money spent on um learning things within the sciences that aren't necessarily going to be of benefit to humanity. And when you think about the amount of suffering and struggle um, in the world, this very often I will ask myself whether there's not ways in which we might be investing um, money in, in better ways. Mm. And again, these are, kind of, these are kinds of questions that I think are important for scientists to be asking. And to be fair, most scientists do recognize they're important um, questions to be asking, but these are questions that come from beyond what the sciences themselves mm-hmm. address. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, it, I'm getting distracted from your initial question. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was great. I, I, I think, uh, it, you know, what, what I had on what the, the idea I had in the back of my mind was uh, the attempts as, as space exploration, if you call it, uh, you know, the exploration okay. of the cosmos becomes more and more expensive uh, when you need uh, joint national uh, cooperative endeavors between the ESA and NASA and uh, other agencies throughout the world. Um, you know, I know in our country, 
a lot of scientists go before Congress and uh, have impassioned speeches about uh, now is the time to study this or now is the time to study that. But frequently within the appeals uh, for for grants and things uh, is this idea to to try to understand our origins and where we came from. I know uh, with the Juno mission to Jupiter several years ago, the promotional video that they had put out for it, uh, that the chief scientists involved were saying, you know, we want to know our origins. And so here was a little space probe to, to the giant planet in our solar system uh, with the, the, the underlying philosophical desire of knowledge to think that something about Jupiter is going to reveal something about us. I find that to be a predominantly prevalent theme in, in a lot of the sciences today in, in justification for why we do things in, in knowing our origins. But I think for me, it gets back to what are you going to do with that knowledge? Like Jesus is like God's question to Jacob. Why do you want to know my name? Or maybe with Moses wanting to see God's glory. Why do you want to see my glory? What is the point ultimately? And there was an essay in the book that talked about this, the, the difference between the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. And even for me as a Christian, why do I want to know this? What's the point of this? And I think your book helped me to, to see that question again, that it is really the glory of God revealed in Christ on the cross and his, his resurrection and what he has done for us as man for man. Um, and so any, any investigation into the sciences, I think, has to grapple with that question. And even for Christians, right? The, why are we wanting to know these things? What is the ultimate reason or rationale for why we want to know these things? I mean, I think we shouldn't be expecting scientists in their research um, to start mentioning Jesus all the time. You know, <laughs> right, I mean, right, if, right. If, if you so if you're if you were to ask a church going scientist and someone that might be a very good scientist, how often Jesus comes up in their research, I think it would be surprising if their answer was greater than never. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I think if, if a scientist were to start listing examples of when Jesus turned up in their research, you'd probably have good reasons to question whether they are a serious scientist. <laughs> right. And the reason for this is that Jesus is not on the empirical radar that is guiding the natural sciences. Mm. Um, and so when we want to try and develop a Christological understanding of creation, that doesn't mean that we want to say, encourage Christian scientists to try and find ways to fit Jesus in to their right. research, but it's to help them understand that a part of the world in which they're trying to understand is a, is a world that is created by God and is a world that God unites God's self with. And what is, I think was one of the things that was really important about the work I was doing with scientists in congregations was to help scientists be able to understand the sciences as a Christian vocation, that when they walk into the laboratory, they don't need to leave their faith or leave God at the door. There's an extent to which all the things that they're studying um, are things that find their truest meaning um, as they're defined by God um, and are defined according to a purpose that finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. So it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it's not that we're, the, the goal is to try to, 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 uh, to preach the gospel in the laboratory per se, and to be trying to, to shoehorn, if you will, to try to artificially make these connections between creation and Christ, but rather to help believers recapture 
a redemptive view of creation uh, that is is not overly simplistic. It's not uh, sort of a uh, just a John three sixteen and and a and a protein molecule, but it, it's a much more holistic perspective of how Jesus. We need to understand Jesus, his cross, his resurrection, his his acts in the Gospels, um, in terms of how it relates to creation. One of the essays points uh, to Jesus's use of nature parables, in fact. Um, and I just talked to uh, Malcolm Geit, who's a poet in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Malcolm and I had a wonderful conversation about the, uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge mm-hmm. and that creation is a kind of divine poetry in which it is Correct. multi-layered. Uh, the light of a star, you know, has many different, you have the direct empirical understanding of what constitutes starlight, but then you have this light pointing beyond the light of the star itself to the light of Christ. And, uh, and so it, it it just seems like there's a there's a, a great deal of legwork that we need to do to order in order to recapture a truly christological view of of creation so andrew for people that are kind of where do i start with all this how do i how do i begin to engage with this on a level that is redemptive and thoughtful and not just trite or superficial or conditional uh or propositional is the right word uh, one of the essays did a great job of 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 making the difference between God as propositional knowledge, uh, just sort of a truth fact about reality versus God, the relational being who wants to relate to us and redeem us and save us. Do you find that to be a distinction, a problematic distinction in the church where we just talk about God propositionally and not relationally? Do you see that as a, as a huge factor? Um, I think that can be a, a problem. Um, I think it's probably more of a problem in the academic world of theology and apologetics than it is in the church itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so very often we have the opposite problem in the church where people are, are more concerned about the emotional and the personal side of things and maybe not paying enough attention <laughs> to the more propositional <laughs> content of the, of, the, of the Christian faith. But I mean, again, it, it is so much is going to depend on who we're talking to and yes. the context yes. we're in. But yes, I think one of the problems with certain pursuits of knowledge and understanding is that it can be, become very abstract. And we don't uh-huh. think, you know, we're, we're thinking about propositions that can really be sort of abstracted from the, the concrete world um, in which we have inhabit and don't really think about how these really make a difference to our lives in this world, mm. how these really relate to the world in which we, in which we live. And mm. so when we're thinking about um, creation, natural world when we're thinking about things that can often be construed in um in terms of theories um in terms of equations and laws um in, in much more abstract ways that we think that these are things that are bound up with the world that has this kind of meaning that is bound up with our very lives within it you know and what is true the truth doesn't simply concern these kind of propositional truths um or laws um or order or however we want to construe um many of the things that scientists concern themselves with. But the truth is actually bound up with a, a historical world in which change takes place. And change and the history of this world are a very good thing. God has created a world to be a spatial, temporal world um, in which personal beings exist in, in their finitude in ways that, that are beautiful in that finitude. Mm. Um, and that there's a truth within the least of things, if you like. I mean, that's, again, one of the things that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. The truth isn't just this transcendent thing um, that God is in God's self. It's not this sort of transcendent realm 
of universal ideas and principles. But truth is, becomes bound up with the very creation in which we live. And there's something distinctive about that, which is good in its finitude, in its change, changingness, um, um, in its concrete existence. And I think what we need to recognize is that truth needs to be bound up with the world in which we live. It's not something that can simply be abstracted from it. Yes. Do you see, did you see in your experience um, a tendency within the church to be too eager to wed its theology to a particular scientific paradigms? Did you find that to be a, a distinct problem or an issue where, uh, you know, maybe sort of in a reactionary sense that in order to maybe seem or appear legitimate and logical to a, an unbelieving world, we, we sort of try to find ways maybe artificially uh, to find semblance between uh, scientific paradigms and, and traditional Christian theology. Is that a something you ran across, a danger or a, a, something that uh, uh, you addressed? Yeah, I think there can definitely be a danger danger there. And so one of the most obvious ways in which this danger presents itself um, is when we try to think about um, the world of theology and the world of science as these kind of two worlds are non-overlapping worlds. You know, um, they, and when we're studying, we're engaged in theological tasks, we're, task, we're engaged in something that is completely different from the kind of study that we're engaged in when we're engaged in the scientific task. What we find is that very often then, um, things, questions about facts and reality end up being associated with the sciences, and then questions about meaning and purpose end up being associated with, um, with theology, and we sort of end up separating these, these two mm. things. But the problem with that is that at the heart of the Christian faith is a God that actively involves God's self in history, in the history of the world. Mm. Um, obviously, in the person of Jesus Christ, but throughout, um, by acting in ways that we would associate with miracles. Um, when, a, when a person becomes a Christian, we recognize that that happens because um, the Spirit has worked in that person's life in a way that has transformed their mind. Um, we, we recognize that at the very beginning, God created the world, that we, we recognize that God had a hand in shaping the way in which that world developed um, through God's providence. And so what we see is that there is a whole host of different ways in which God is actively involved in the world. Um, and God's action makes a difference to how we understand the world that we observe. Mm. Um, and so this is, so we, it's not that easy to simply separate um, theology and the science from one another. Um, because mm. the world that we observe is a world that um, is understood differently when we recognize God's um, involvement within it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think there can be another problem at the other end of the spectrum where people become too quick to always want to um, involve God um, in our explanations of the way in which the natural world works. And that can sometimes cause problem and problems. And in, in the history um, of theology, there are ways in which um, Christian theology has become too eager to say speak to the sciences in ways that maybe overstep um what they should be doing yes so, and and so i think um there can be problems at both ends of the spectrum so it's a it's there's an artificiality of a we might want what we might want to call an eisegesis of nature both maybe from a secular perspective and maybe from a, a very zealous uh christian perspective wanting to have 
I find this to be the case with myself. Uh, I love cosmology. I'm not a, I'm not physically tra- trained in the physical sciences, but I've been a lay astronomer uh, for some time and, and love stargazing and all this stuff. But we want to rush in to fill the void uh, when a skeptic or an atheist, I love the chapter uh, uh, in the latter part of the book uh, where the, the two authors outline uh, the 28 uh, theses of science and a, a, a theology of the cross of science. And they, they, they pretty do, they do a pretty good job of, of describing the sort of Christian reactionary uh, mentality toward new atheism. Uh, and I see a lot of apologetics designed like, uh, you know, apologetic superheroes going to defend the faith against the atheist infidel. And, and we tend to want to rush in and fill, fill the void, fill the skeptic, answer every skeptic's question. And, and, and we don't, we don't find, at least I find it very difficult to be silent sometimes and to say, well, let me think about that. Or I don't have an answer or I don't know. And I think of, I think of Pilate's question to Jesus and John, what is truth? And scripture does not record that Pilate received a direct answer. And, you know, and I think it was in Isaiah where Jesus is like a sheep to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. And then of course, in Psalm 19, we have the, the silent declaration of God's glory that, that, that we're given a, a declaration of glory, but not with words. And then you have the cross where Jesus cries out, it is finished. And then the sun goes dark and it, it's, it's, it's like at a loss. There's not enough. There's conceptually, there aren't words there. There seems to be a time when um, no words that we are at a loss for words to describe creation in Christological terms. Would you find that to be true? I know in Job, for example, when God, God's longest discourse in the Bible is about creation. And Job is finally, other than saying, I repent, he's, these are questions that he can't answer. Um, How do you find in, in terms of answering skeptic questions uh, where the church is in engaging this? Do we speak too quickly or uh, how do lay people address or get involved with, um, you know, when is it, when is it right to be silent? When is it, when is it good not to say something about God and creation? This is a great, great, great question. Um, I think a big part of having a Christian imagination is recognizing how little um, we know about the nature of reality. But this is also, I think, a big part of um, a scientific understanding. I mean, a good scientist, you realize that they, there's a lot more they don't know <laughs> than, they, than, they, than they do know. And one uh-huh. of the people who, who really recognized this was, was John Calvin. I mean, John Calvin mm. was someone who loved astronomy he loved um, seeing all the developments that were happening within the world of astronomy at the time. And for him, that really helped him to see the grandeur of creation. Um, and so, he, I mean, so what we find actually right throughout, especially the first 15, 1600 years, is I mean, what was maybe often called natural philosophy at the time, was something that was really embraced by some of the, the, the people that we would consider to be the fathers of the church, mm-hmm. right? From, from Augustine to Aquinas um, to, to Calvin. Um, but what ha- began to happen later is that as the, science, the sciences began to make progress in ways that some people within the church thought were competing with theological claims, a sort of a battle began to emerge between um, the sciences and the theology um, 
that wasn't a happy battle. And I think it was in part very often due to confusion about the different roles that um, scientists and theologians have um, in how we go about understanding the natural order. One of the problems very often here is, is that people want, the theologians and the scientists want to try and find ways of embracing the same kind of methodology. That the kind of certainty that scientists have is the kind of certainty that theologians want to have in the very same kind of, kind of way. And what, what has happened and sometimes happened is that the Bible ends up being treated as this kind of a scientific textbook as a book that tells us, um, presents us with a series of facts about the way in which the natural um, order is. And in some respects, it does do this. But in other respects, it's trying to tell us about the meaning um, of creation, the story of creation, in ways that um, go beyond what we're going to learn from a more detailed scientific understanding mm -hmm. of the natural world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, um, and this can sometimes happen within apologetics, um, there's an atheistic understanding of the natural world that kind of defines the nature of the conversation yes. and ends up shaping the way, the kind of theology that emerges out of that. And so what we find is that the problems that atheists put on the table become foundational for shaping our theology. And I think in the last hundred years, that's been one of the biggest problems that we've seen um, in some theological traditions. Absolutely. You know, it's a lack of, Christians having a confidence to embrace the difficult and sometimes strange truths that they believe um, in light of what they learn from scripture um, mm -hmm. for the sake of saying something that's going to be more palatable to um, a secular audience. Very often the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Yes. Do you find, I, I mean, I find this true to be, I made apologetics a formal study of mine uh, back in 2014. I was, was, was interested in the, the apologetic arguments um, as a as a an adult convert, um, and and never really formalized it until uh, I did a master's degree in the program, and I met. Uh, I'm sure you know Michael Ward. Yep. Yeah. He's at St. Andrews. Yes, I uh, I Michael was my thesis advisor at uh, Houston Baptist University. I did my thesis on Lewis and uh, uh, Planet Narnia. <laughs> as Michael said, I was the first one to do a master's thesis on Planet Narnia. <laughs> so it was delightful working with him. But, but you know, one of the things that, that I find in, in the field of apologetics, Andrew, is it just seems like what you just said, that we are bogged down in allowing the skeptic to determine the nature and the course of the discussion. And so we seem to be stuck in first gear with, does God exist? And we never seem to progress beyond uh, a lowest common denominator deism uh, in a lot of Christian apologetic arguments that are repeated over and over again and don't convince a whole lot of skeptics. But I, I, I rarely see the, the syllogism um, that, that robustly defends a Christological uh, understanding of, of creation. We, we seem to start with theism and then somehow try to work Jesus into it through the back door. Do you see that a lot too? Yeah, I see that. I see that all the time. Um, at the same time, I mean, I'm someone that will often engage in apologetics. When I go and speak to local high schools, for example, I will often use um, various ontological or cosmological or fine tuning arguments um, to help the students see that there's more to the understanding the world in which we live than they might 
and be led to believe. Mm -hmm. And what I often find is that apologetics can do an enormous amount of work in opening students' minds to the possibilities um, of their bigging, bigger questions to ask that they, they weren't asking. And then in response to those bigger questions, I can then maybe introduce them to the gospel story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there is a God, you know, the God that these apologetic arguments seems to point to is one who comes with us um, and enters the world in the form of a person. And then there's, I mean, if you want, there's apologetic arguments that can be made about the resurrection. Sure. Um, but at the end of the day, what, the role I see of apologetics is to provide a platform where those listening can become more open to hearing the gospel message. I don't see it as a place where, um, or I don't see it as a task that is going to, in itself, convert people to Christianity. It's something that maybe prepares the way, that maybe makes them more likely to come through the, walk through the doors of a church, to be more likely to pick up their, their, their Bible, um, to be more likely to really listen to um, someone who's going to speak the gospel message to them. So it's a way to frame, apologetics as I see it is a way to frame, as you say, it's a way to frame the discussion, uh, a preparation for uh, a presentation of, of the gospel. Um, but it is not, uh, it's not, in a sense, it's not totalistically, it's not the full total of the, of the, of the Great Commission. It's, it's a part that serves uh, sort of a John the Baptist kind of thing and prepare the way of the Lord it, it seems to be, um, especially for high school. I mean, I, I was a middle and high school teacher myself. So mm-hmm. the value of apologetics is not lost on me there in regards to opening up uh, younger students' minds about about what's out there. Um, but in progressing and maturing and going on to to, to, to a deeper appreciation and understanding of, of creation, um, do you, in, 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 in talking to churches and, and other Christians who are familiar with the field of apologetics, um, where, where is where, where do we mature in our? How do we begin to mature in our thinking of seeing Jesus uh, without being overly zealous or without being you know too overly religious or overly zealous without knowledge? Or how do we how do we want to walk that line? As Paul says, you know, how do we begin in understanding Colossians one, where where we see all things by Him, for Him, and through Him? Can we start with Colossians when we engage unbelievers, or is that something that is just left more for a, a more spiritually mature audience or is that effective in, in engaging uh, unbelievers or do we always have to sort of start with theism? Again, a lot depends on the particular audience that, that you're engaging. I think, and I think the UK is maybe slightly different from um, at least some areas in the U S in that it is much more secular. So if I were to go and speak at a local high school here, I would, the, and maybe speak to 100 or 200 students, there might be three or four Christians within that audience. Wow. And I think for m- most of the people in that audience would think that belief in God is completely irrational. And mm. would say things like, we would say things like, I believe in science, not God. And even my, my, five, my five and six-year-old, well, my children, they're much older now, but when they were five and six-year-olds, I remember them coming home and telling me that children in, in their, you know, the very earliest years of school um, said that they believed in science, not God. And there's this kind of narrative that exists right throughout the UK. And that does mean that there's got to be a certain initial conversation um, that's got to happen, I think, to prepare the way for allowing people to become more open to hearing 
the possibility that there might be more, um, more to reality than immediately meets the eye. At the same time, I think that sometimes amongst apologists, there can be too much of a hesitation to make that next step to introduce um, who Jesus Christ is. And one of, the thing, one of the things that we need to have confidence in is that when we preach the gospel, we do not do that alone. You know, when we um, proclaim the incarnate word, the, Jesus Christ to the world, we do, do so in a way that is empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. So there's ways in which a form of um, argument is taking place by the convincing power of the Holy Spirit that's going on beyond what we're able to do in and of ourselves. So mm -hmm. I think that can give us a confidence, but that shouldn't mean that we just march forward piously without an attentiveness to the particular audience um, and where they're at at that moment of time. We've got to engage in communication. I mean, when we're, when we're um, telling people about the um, scriptural message today, we're not speaking to them in Greek or Hebrew, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're working with a translation, a translated version of the text. Um, and, and, and we're doing that because we think there's good reasons to try and speak to them where, where they're at. And I think a part of what the apologetics task is doing is trying to translate to them an understanding of the world as being much bigger, having much more meaning than we can discern from the sciences themselves. Now, when it comes to preaching about passages such as Colossian, um, passages from Colossians or from, from John that speak to the relationship between Christ and creation. Um, yeah, there's, there's going to be a diverse range of ways in which we try to communicate a message. And there'll be different messages that we would associate when we're thinking about the relationship between Christ and creation. I helped to run a, a missional church um, here in St. Andrews, which is trying to reach out to people that are on the fringes of society that maybe aren't familiar with church. And mm. so we're constantly trying to think about what it means to preach um, Christ to them. And I think very often one of the things that, one of the central messages that I can tell people that are coming to church um, for the first time is that in order to know who they are, they need to know the one to whom they belong. Mm. The one to whom they belong is the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and when we come to know Jesus Christ, there's an extent to which we no longer need to have the fears that so often um, undermine our flourishing within this world. Mm. One of the most frequent commandments that we get right throughout the text, if not right throughout scripture, if not the most um, common commandment is to not be afraid. Do not fear. Um, and do not fear. And yeah. that's a command. And that's a command that we really come to understand when we come to understand that God is with us and that in the mm. person of Jesus Christ, we come to know the one to whom we belong. And that kind of kinship that God has with us, Jesus Christ, coming to know that gives people a sense of belonging that very, a lot of people don't know today. I mean, so many people yes. across society don't experience a sense of belonging. There's a sense of loss, of, of being lost in this world, yeah. not knowing where to go, to go. And apologetics isn't going to provide a people with an answer to the question, where do I belong? Mm. Jesus Christ answers that question. And Jesus Christ answers that question in a way that helps people to know that they should not be afraid. That, mm. there are, that God is not this distant God, but is a God who resides among us, who experiences um, the trials, the suffering um, that we experience within the world, that is tempted in every way that we are, 
And we have a God that dies for us and forgives us while we are still sinners. That, There's not a God while we are still sinners. Yeah. You know, we don't have a God that simply waits for us to get our lives together <laughs> in order to then save us. We have a God that saves us in the midst of our sinfulness. Yeah, um, it is. It, it's wonderful. I mean, it, 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 I, you bring up to mind uh, my own experience, Andrew. I'm an adult convert. I've been a Christian for 27 years. I lost my dad tragically when I was in high school. But my Christian life has been one of an increasing, and it's just a shame to admit it, but your your words are so comforting, uh, a constant anxiety that I'm not going to be able to answer a skeptic's question. <laughs> you might say that my field, my my interest in apologetics was was motivated in part by this fear that you describe, that I'm not going to be able to to give an answer to somebody. And and then so what happens is you you acquire and accumulate as much knowledge as you can, and then you become more anxious because, oh, I don't know the answer to that question, or, oh, I don't know the answer to that question. But resting in who we are in Jesus Christ is, is what, as, as, as John says, perfect love casts out fear. Those who fear have not been made perfect in love. And God doesn't wait for us to, to have courage. He gives it to us, as I've learned, incrementally. And uh, when we when we proclaim His word, uh, we should do so with with boldness and and confidence. But yet, as Peter says, First Peter three fifteen, gentleness and reverence and or humility. Um, but it's not right. a, we're not enslaved to to a fear of God, but it's a, a fear that liberates us and gives us confidence, right? Precisely. And I think very often one of the problems that we see with apologetics is that we have precisely that anxiety that you described. That if we lose the argument. We lose the person. But actually, mm. very often in my experience, it has been but actually a willingness to say that I don't understand yet um, some things. I, I don't think there's a good answer, for example, to the problem of evil. When students ask me about the problem of evil, I will provide them some kind of response. But I would say at the end of the day, the proper answer to the problem of evil for me is the person of Jesus Christ. That in coming to know him, we realize that sin and evil is something we, that we need not fear anymore. Right. And right. I think very often when we're committed to apologetics, we need to recognize that the goal isn't simply convincing that person um, that you're right in your argument, but that, that, that God loves that person. And so often in order to communicate, there needs to be um, a willingness to not sort of control the situation, yeah. but to just witness to a sense of security that you have found um, in knowing the truth. And that kind of confidence and security, I think very often does more work in apologetics ministries than the actual convincing nature of the argument itself. Mm -hmm. I, I, there's very few people um, in my experience that become a Christian just because they're convinced by an argument. Um, it's very often, I mean, very often I hear people say that they were just, they, they very much admire um, the attitude of the Christian they're engaging in a conversation with and there's something much more powerful about that sometimes than the arguments and i think that's something that we really need to remember we go about the task of apologetics absolutely it's uh it reminds me of first corinthians 13 of course that you know you can explain all mysteries but if you don't have love um exactly what exactly. what is the value of your explanation uh not much in 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 that regard um but uh 
it's just been a, a wonderful whirlwind uh, conversation with you, Andrew. I've, <laughs> I've, I've learned and have been uh, encouraged in just the last hour in talking to you. Uh, I hope uh, my questions made sense. I kind of rambled because I have so many thoughts in my head all at once and uh, you seem to field them pretty well. So thank you. <laughs> yes, well, this has a great, been a great conversation for me, and it's been a pleasure to learn from you also. And oh. I mean, it's a, an, an enormous topic, so we are obviously only going to be able to get, um, yeah, cover a small part of it. But it's yes. great to no, have no. the chance to do that. I really appreciate uh, your your time, Andrew, and uh, and and a great book. Uh, and you don't have to read all the essays; you can read one essay or or the other. And you know, whether you and and for me, this is another enlightening thing that. Whether you, the line that that we draw in evangelicalism, especially in the United States, where we seem to be more hyper-concerned about the age of the universe or showing that Darwin was wrong, or we we just seem to have the wrong kinds of boundary lines drawn. And and we divide ourselves over these issues that really should be, that are sort of, in my estimation, more trivial than they are anything else. And, And really, your book helped me to see that that, you know, even though we know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, um, we really don't, maybe we really don't put that into a, a kind of um, engaged, an, an incarnational engagement with creation. Uh, we, we know it in our minds that Jesus created everything, but we don't participate in creation as though that were really true. Um, because, you know, like I said, in, in, with the book of Job, I mean, what, what is, what is at the end, what's the cash value for Job and his friends is epistemic humility about God's wisdom. And it's not uh, that we have it all figured out, but that, that, that God's wisdom is manifest in creation. Um, and that wisdom is in Jesus. And for a lot of people, that wisdom appears foolish if we go with what Paul says in first Corinthians. So it, it requires a, an epistemic humility on the part of, of the receivers, but, but that humility can be given back to God in joy and delight for what he has made, like in Psalm 148, where it encourages the whole of creation to praise the Lord. And, uh, I, you know, your book is a, a wonderful reminder of, of just who it is that we should be praising and adoring and, and loving, uh, who, who has given us life and love and truth and, and a sound mind that we should not be afraid. Um, so wherever you stand on the evolution or, age question. Uh, this is a great book, Andrew, and I, I really appreciate the effort that it must have taken to put that together as having edited a book myself <laughs> last year. <laughs> um, so thank you for that. And, and thank you for that. A wonderful book. Where can people find out more about what you do uh, in relation to this science and faith dialogue? There's an, an online website called Scientists and Congregation Scotland. So if you put into Google, Scientists and Congregation Scotland, you'll find information about the project um, that I ran there. But I'm also involved in, uh, I've established an, an institute here in St. Andrews um, alongside my father. Actually, we work together, although he's now retiring, um, called the Logos Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology, um, which is an institute that seeks to bring philosophy, biblical studies, and theology together into conversation. So if you type in Logos Institute, you'll be able to find out a bit more about the work Work there, or even just typing in my my name, um, you'll find be able to find uh, lots of the other work that I've I've done, and some of the work I'm doing here in St Andrews. All right, um, and your father is is your father. How are you related to to Thomas? 
Torrance through your dad or? Yep. So, so TF, TF Torrance is my yeah, great uncle. Um, he had a brother called JB Torrance, who was uh, also uh, quite a well-known theologian. Uh-huh. And JB Torrance's son was Alan Torrance, who's my father, who's also a theologian. And so there's a, there's a few theologians around wow. the Torrance family. So. <laughs> you have some theology in your DNA. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm now uh, you've now tempted me to consider. Uh, I don't know if I would qualify, but I, I would love to come study at St Andrews. Oh, well, you should definitely. We would love to have you have you come over. Um, and yeah, there's some really great things going on at St Andrews. And so yeah, if you're ever, ever making a trip, please don't hesitate to to let us know. Um, yes, absolutely. What uh, what parting wisdom can you leave with us today, Andrew? Well, there's a, a lot of a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, so I think when when we we're coming to understand the world and what the meaning of the creation is in which we participate, we need to recognise that we have a God that has not simply created a world and then left that world to itself, but it is a world that is so loved by God that God becomes one with that world, um, as takes that world to Himself, um, and in and through the the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ um, uni- comes, unites creation with who God is and God's self. And all this is, anticipates what is to come in the new creation when the whole of creation will be united with God and will find its fulfillment. And when we come to think about the world in which we live, we need to really think about what it is according, not simply to its beginnings, but according to its end, according to the end for which it was created, that is bound up with who God is for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. And as the scriptures say, he is the firstborn of creation, uh, mm-hmm. that we will experience a re-creation of what we are today. Uh, he doesn't completely do away with it. He remakes it and refashions it, and which is exciting and fascinating. If this world is so cool, what's the next world yeah. going to be like? <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's this world made new. This so world made so- new. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so what is that? Uh, as Paul says, we all groan for the redemption of our bodies uh, and longingly, eagerly, expectantly looking forward to what it will be like to be with Christ forever in a new heavens and a new earth. So thank you for reminding me of that, Andrew. It was uh, a blessing and, a, and an encouragement to to speak with you very much. So thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you. It's been a joy to speak with you as well that is so loved by God that God becomes one with that world, um, as takes that world to himself, um, and in and through the, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, um, uni- comes, unites creation with who God is and God's self. And all this is, anticipates what is to come in the new creation, when the whole of creation will be united with God and will find its fulfillment. And when we come to think about the world in which we live, we need to really think about what it is according, not simply to its beginnings, but according to its end, according to the end for which it was created that is bound up with who God is for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. And as the scriptures say, he is the firstborn of creation, uh, mm-hmm. that we will experience a re-creation of what we are today. Uh, he doesn't completely do away with it. He remakes it and refashions it. And which is exciting and fascinating. If this world is so cool, what's the next world yep. going to be like? <laughs>
Exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's this world made new. This so world made new. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so what is that? Uh, as Paul says, we all groan for the redemption of our bodies uh, and longingly, eagerly, expectantly looking forward to what it will be like to be with Christ forever in a new heavens and a new earth. So thank you for reminding me of that, Andrew. It was uh, a blessing and, a, and an encouragement to to speak with you very much. So thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you. And it's been a joy to speak with you as well. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on this podcast or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. Be sure to check out the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God, with chapters written by both Wayne and Dan. It is a comprehensive down-to-earth Christian defense of the cosmos, featuring essays on how the heavens have influenced science, art, philosophy, history, and theology. The Story of the Cosmos is a wonderful addition to any bookshelf or coffee table. Filled with stunning images of the heavens, high-quality gloss paper, and in-depth essays, it can be a great gift for friends, family, and non-believers interested in the intersection of science, culture, and faith. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dave Mitchell.